today on Legalese, we are talking about a case that may be the most important for the Supreme Court this term. This is a case that is poised to strike at the most contemptible aspects of the administrative state from their threat to individual rights and civil liberties, including but not limited to the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and 14th Amendment, and the dissolution of separation of powers among the branches of the federal government. Hey, greetings, everybody, and welcome back once again to Legalese. As always, I am your host, Bob, and I want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you happen to be new to my channel, let me especially welcome you. This is the podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as current events in other areas of law, politics, and culture. Now, I just want to remind you guys real quick that you can find out more about us by going over to our homepage, that is LegaleasePodcast.com. And if you want to get updates whenever I put out new content, uh, go sign up for my Substack newsletter over at LegalEaseShow.com, and you will get updates whenever I put out, whether it's videos on YouTube, audio on Spotify, or articles on uh, Substack, you'll get notifications whenever anything new gets posted. So let's jump right in today. Uh, we are going to be talking about what I believe may wind up being the most interesting and consequential case for the Supreme Court term, and that is Securities and Exchange Commission v. Charkazy. Now, we did briefly cover the question presented of this case as part of my Supreme Court round of video back in October, but today we're finally going to be taking a deep dive into this case, and there is a whole hell of a lot to dive into here. So first, we will be discussing the background of the case, including the fascinating holdings in this case, uh, from when it came before the Fifth Circuit Court last year, uh, which, as a matter of fact, the Supreme Court case is simply seeking to either affirm or vacate that very case. And then we will be talking about uh, what new information can be gleaned from the oral arguments that took place in this case in the Supreme Court uh, just about a month ago now on November 29th. And I will be addressing and debunking some of the more common scaremongering that has arisen with this case. And then finally, I will also be giving you my own take on this case. So stay tuned because we have a hell of a lot to cover. But the very first thing I want to do today is take a moment and define exactly what it is I mean when I talk about uh, administrative agency administrative law, and most importantly, the administrative state. Now, from the Constitution of Massachusetts of 1780, written by John Adams, one of his greatest lines was that in the government of the Commonwealth, the legislative department shall never exercise the executive and judicial powers or either of them. The executive shall never exercise the legislative or judicial powers or either of them and the judicial shall never exercise the legislative and executive powers or either of them. To that end, it may be a government of laws and not of men. Now, you may very well be wondering what an archaic article from the Declaration of Rights of the Inhabitants of Massachusetts from their 1780 Constitution has to do with this very new legal concept that is known as the administrative state. And the thing is that, fundamentally speaking, the administrative state is a term that is used to describe the power that some government agencies have to write, judge, and enforce their own laws. And to the extent that that is true, we no longer have a government of laws. This dissolution of the separation of powers to such a degree is the very thing that was identified by classical Republicans from Machiavelli to Montesquieu to Madison, who identified it as one of the worst of all tyrannies. Now, while the Constitution vests all legislative power in the legislative branch, Congress has decided to delegate much of that lawmaking capacity 
to an alphabet soup of different regulatory agencies. Now, ostensibly, this is done under presidential oversight. And by agencies, think EPA, uh, SEC, FDA, etc. Now, amazingly, there is actually no official count of how many executive branch agencies are making policy, though our best estimates reach as high as 430. Now, regardless of the exact number, what we have is hundreds of federal agencies which are inserting themselves into every nook and cranny of daily life. Now, these agencies regulate through a combination of the legislative, executive, and judicial functions by issuing rules with the force of law, policing those rules, and adjudicating their enforcement. Now, in 2021, for example, the Biden administration issued 3,257 regulations with the force and effect of law, whereas Congress passed 81 laws during that time. And that worked out to be 40 times as many regulations being created as there were new laws being passed. Now, while supporters of the administrative state will point to these very same figures as a matter of pride, as they talk about the uh, efficiency of administrative agencies willing to do the work of the so-called do-nothing Congress that they simply refuse to take up. But Congress's inability to pass laws was a feature and not a flaw of our government. The administrative state is an end run around what is supposed to be a very difficult process. Our bicameral legislature is one of the most important and most effective checks on power we have when it comes to the federal government. Now, the last available year for comprehensive data about administrative adjudications uh, is 2013. And in that year, the five busiest administrative agencies convened 1,351,342 executive branch tribunals. That same year, there were 57,777 total cases, both civil and criminal, filed in the U.S. District and Appellate Courts. That's more than 23 times more agency adjudication than Article III federal court trials. Now, of course, the administrative state's concentration of legislative, executive, and judicial power operates in considerable tension with our constitutional structure, which was designed to diffuse government authority to better protect liberty. As James Madison warned in Federalist 47, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. Now, administrative agencies have always been an important part of our government from day one, but what we call the administrative state is a conception that has grown in fits and bursts at various times over our nation's history. Though this growth was most prominent during the progressive era from the late 19th to early 20th century, and then again during the New Deal era. But the most important and consequential moment came with the passage of the Administrative Procedures Act of 1946. The APA could almost be an entire episode of the show in and of itself, and if anyone would be interested in that show, uh, let me know by leaving me uh, a comment down below. Uh, but um, this is a statute that is often referred to as the Constitution of the Administrative State. Now, when the Administrative Procedures Act was passed in 1946, agencies rarely issued legislative rules, and instead, agencies created rules through a case-by-case -case adjudication, very much akin to how the common law works. And as a result, 
the APA gave scant attention to rulemaking, which is now the primary means by which agencies regulate. Now, the absence of any meaningful procedural safeguards has abetted what attorney and administrative law professor Gary Lawson has dubbed the rise and rise of the administrative state. And it was this shift from case-by-case -case adjudication to broad, broad legislative rulemaking as their primary focus over the next several decades that first gave birth to what we now know as administrative law. It really wasn't until the early 1970s that people began to recognize what we now call administrative law as its own unique and comprehensive body of laws. Now, besides promulgating law-like regulations, agencies also enforce these rules in prosecutions before tribunals located within the same agency that brought the enforcement action. This combination of prosecutorial and adjudicative authority coexist uneasily with a constitutional structure such as ours, and as James Madison observed in Federalist 47, and Montesquieu observed even before him in the spirit of the laws in 1748, there is no liberty if the judiciary power be not separated from the legislative and executive. Were it joined to the executive power, the judge might behave with violence and oppression. And in practice, the agency's home field advantage is sometimes conspicuous here. For example, the Securities and Exchange Commission acts both as a prosecutor and as the judge when the agency pursues financial penalties through enforcement of its regulations for publicly traded companies and investment activities. And according to an analysis that was conducted by the Wall Street Journal, the Securities and Exchange Commission has an over 90% win rate in contested cases that it would bring before its own internal administrative law judges, which are, are often just referred to as ALJs, and that's the term I will be using from here on out mostly. Now, from 2010 through 2015, the SEC would only prevail in 69% of federal court trials over the same period. And during this period, regulated parties filed an official complaint regarding an alleged lack of impartiality by one SEC in-house judge, whose record was that of ruling in favor of the agency 51 to 0. All right, now we're going to start talking about the background of the particular case at hand, SEC v. Jarchese. Now, Congress has given the Securities and Exchange Commission substantial power to enforce the nation's securities laws, and its decisions have broad consequences for personal liberty and private property rights. But the Constitution constrains the SEC's powers to protect individual rights and the prerogatives of the other branches of government. And ultimately, this case is about the nature and extent of those constraints in securities fraud cases in which the SEC seeks penalties. So the SEC brought an enforcement action uh, within their own agency against a George Jarchese for securities fraud. And in SEC ALJ, judged Jarchese liable and ordered various remedies, and when he appealed, the same administrative law judge reaffirmed his own ruling. Imagine that. Now, following Jarchese's appeal over several constitutional arguments that he raised, uh, the first thing that made this case stand out, at least to me, was how the Fifth Circuit handled this case, because usually when a petitioner brings a case seeking review of a lower court decision, the judge hearing the case will try to resolve the case as narrowly as possible. And that is not what happened here. The Fifth Circuit issued three separate decisions, all as alternative holdings, and each of which is a very big and important decision that will not just affect the SEC necessarily, but could, in fact, could affect 
the entire administrative state. So let's review the three alternate holdings made by the Fifth Circuit and then briefly discuss them one by one. So the SEC's in-house adjudication of petitioner's case violated the Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. That is the first of the three holdings. The second is that Congress unconstitutionally delegated legislative power to the SEC by failing to provide an intelligible principle by which the SEC could exercise the delegated power in violation of Article I's vesting clause and all legislative powers in Congress. And three, statutory removal restrictions on SEC ALJs violate the Take Care Clause of Article 2. So this case started with the SEC bringing a fraud case against Jarchese. And the question was about the authority of the SEC. Now, that first holding concerned the right to a jury trial under the Seventh Amendment because the SEC had accused him of fraud. The Fifth Circuit held that the securities fraud was similar enough to common law fraud that existed at the time of the founding as such, the Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial was triggered in that case. Now, that second part uh, concerns non-delegation, which is a big deal because here they employed non-delegation in a uh, fairly uh, rare way, actually, and they used it to actually block an action taken by an administrative agency, which is really rather rare. Generally speaking, non-delegation is used to construe a statute narrowly to limit the authority of an agency in certain contexts. But as I've just said, that's not what the Fifth Circuit did. Here, Congress had given the Securities and Exchange Commission the authority to make a regulation with the same force as law as congressional legislation would have, and they used that power to create a, a regulation that is functionally identical to the existing criminal offense of fraud at common law. Now, the most important difference is this regulation gave them a choice that the common law does not provide. The SEC had the authority to decide whether to bring the case in an Article III court with the full authority of all protections afforded to a defendant in the case. So, for instance, in an Article III court, invoking your Fifth Amendment right to not answer questions cannot be held against you or construed as evidence of guilt. Now, the other option that the SEC had that was given to them by Congress in the enabling statute was to try this case as an administrative proceeding that is all handled internally by the very same agency bringing the charges. And administrative proceedings provide none of the constitutional or common law rights of a criminal defendant in an Article III court, such as invoking your erstwhile right to silence. In an administrative proceeding, this can and will be held against you as positive evidence of your guilt. Now, in the Jarchese case, what we have is an agency, namely the SEC, exercising legislative authority to write a regulation with the force of law that Jarchese was accused of violating, exercising executive authority by acting as the prosecutor against Jarchese and exercising judicial authority by ruling on the case against Jarchese. Therefore, because Congress seemingly gave this executive agency legislative and judicial powers under the Securities Act, the Securities Exchange Act, and the Advisors Act, this constitutes, according to the Fifth Circuit, an unconstitutional violation of the non-delegation doctrine. Now, the final holding in the case uh, pertains to the dual for-cause limitations on the removal of board members, and it contravenes the Constitution's separation of powers in violation of the Case Free Enterprise Fund v. Public Company Accounting Board. And this here has got to easily be the most solid of the three different holdings in this case. 
So the Constitution provides that the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. Since 1789, the Constitution has been understood to empower the president to keep executive officers accountable by removing them from office if necessary. Now, this court has determined that this authority is not without limit, and this is coming from that case, Free Enterprise Fund, the Public Company Accounting Board. And so, they went on. In Humphrey's executor, this court held that Congress can, under certain circumstances, create independent agencies run by principal officers appointed by the president, whom the president may not remove at will, but only for good cause. And in United States v. Perkins and Morrison v. Olson, the court sustained similar restrictions on the power of principal executive officers, themselves responsible to the president to remove their own inferiors. However, this court has not addressed the consequence of more than one level of good cause tenure. Where the court has upheld limitations, excuse me, upheld limited restrictions on the president's removal power, only one level of protected tenure separated the president from an officer exercising executive power. The president or a subordinate he could remove at will decided whether the officer's conduct merited removal under the good cause standard. Now here, the act not only protects administrative law judges from removal except for cause, except for good cause specifically, but it withdraws from the president any decision on whether that good cause even exists. And that decision is vested in tenured officers, known as the commissioners of the Merit System Protection Board, who are also not subject to the president's direct control, because the commission cannot remove an ALJ at will, and the president himself cannot hold the commission fully accountable for an administrative law judge's conduct. He can only review the commissioner's determination of whether the act's rigorous good cause standard is met. And if the president disagrees with that determination, he is powerless to intervene. Now, this arrangement contradicts Article 2's vesting of the executive power in the president. Without the ability to oversee an administrative law judge, a board member, or even the commissioners, the president is no longer the judge of an administrative law judge's conduct. He can neither ensure that the laws are faithfully executed, nor be held responsible for an ALJ's breach of faith. And these restrictions are simply incompatible, prima facie, with the Constitution's separation of powers and the Take Care Clause. Now, it seems highly probable that this may explain why administrative law judges have no qualms about ruling in their own favor in over 90% of all cases. Effectively speaking, the laws which constrain the actions of the Department of Justice cannot be said to constrain an administrative law judge because they know there are absolutely no consequences for choosing to ignore the laws of constraint. And with that, let us move on to talking about the Supreme Court case. Now, now that we have a fairly solid understanding of the Fifth Circuit's holding in this case, um, let's briefly look at the wording of the QP, which the Supreme Court uh, would grant petition for cert on. Then look at what can be uh, understood from these recent round of oral arguments in this case. So the Supreme Court has presented the same uh, three-part QP as the Fifth Circuit, uh, and I want to take these one by one. So first, whether statutory provisions that empower the Securities and Exchange Commission to initiate and adjudicate administrative enforcement proceedings seeking civil penalties violate the Seventh Amendment. Second, 
whether statutory provisions that authorize the SEC to choose to enforce the securities laws through the agency adjudication instead of filing a district court action violate the non-delegation doctrine. And third, whether Congress violated Article 2 by granting a for-cause removal protection to administrative law judges and agencies whose heads enjoy for-cause removal protection. And with that basic understanding of the QP uh, in the case of the Supreme, case, uh, Supreme Court is hearing, uh, let's move on to talking about what can be gleaned from the recent oral arguments that took place in this case. Now, when this case came before the Supreme Court, the oral arguments bore little resemblance, actually, to the case that I had been familiar with, both during the oral arguments that were presented a year before in the Fifth Circuit, as well as the case brief filed by both parties following the Supreme Court's grant on the petition for cert. Now, the Fifth Circuit arguments saw George Jarchese set the tone of the proceeding with a really vigorous and spirited defense of his constitutional challenges. And we also got a vigorous debate between the attorneys and the three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit about all the key elements that would make up the case's alternative holdings. Except, while in the Supreme Court, first of all, it was the SEC who were the petitioners, which means that they set the tone of the hearing. And furthermore, despite the Supreme Court's arguments being unusually long at over two hours, they actually only ever discussed the first of those three questions presented for the duration of the hearing. There was not a single comment or question from the court addressing non-delegation, and the executive appointments issue was only mentioned once in passing by Justice Kavanaugh. For Kamika's brief. Okay, on the Article 2 issue, quickly, one question uh, there that uh, this seems problematic under Free Enterprise Fund. And that was it. You would think with an unusually long hearing that only covered a single issue, you, it would have at least given you a clear indication of where each justice came down on that one issue. But you would be wrong. Uh, as we might have expected, most of the justices did seem unsympathetic to the SEC's position. But really, the only clear indications of why they were unsympathetic came from Justices Thomas and Gorsuch. That's a matter involving public rights. Uh, <clears throat> if I don't agree with you that we're talking about public rights here, uh, that the private rights are involved, uh, would you uh, then think that uh, it is required that it be adjudicated before uh, an Article Three court? So Now, Justice Thomas staked out a familiar sentiment he has raised in prior cases that the public rights doctrine which is the idea that agencies can adjudicate public rights without a jury but cannot apply to any matter depriving an individual of property, uh, that there is really no distinction here. And so, is it not really surprising, he uh, did not accept the government's arguments for this distinction, and that was really sort of the thrust of his disagreement, was his disagreement with the entire notion of public rights versus private rights. as far as you're concerned. What yes. if the government tomorrow decided, well, we don't like those jury trial uh, that come with that. We're, we're going we're gonna to effectively overrule toll by moving those to administrative proceedings. Then the Seventh Amendment would disappear on your account, wouldn't it? Now, let's say that the, the, uh, the government brought a fraudulent conveyance uh, argument instead of a private party. Then the Seventh Amendment right would again, on your account, I think, dissipate, disappear, whatever verb you want to use. So I'm, I'm not as sure about that, Justice Gorsuch. I think the principle in Atlas Roofing, the one we're li relying on here, is government enforcement in its sovereign capacity. If you're talking about government in its proprietary capacity, bringing a fraudulent <laughs> conveyance claim as an ordinary participant oh, in bankruptcy. No, it creates some statute much like the one we have here that looks a lot like fraud, but yeah, a little bit different in sovereign capacity. 
Now, equally unsurprising was Justice Gorsuch's repeated ridicule of the arguments of the SEC and that the jury trial right the SEC was claiming was wholly inapplicable to agency proceedings. And whenever the public rights doctrine permits Congress to authorize agency adjudication uh, for Justice Gorsuch, that amounted to the view that the Seventh Amendment would, uh, and this are his words, on your account, dissipate, disappear, whatever verb you want to use. For him, accepting that result would allow Congress to overrule the pre-existing Seventh Amendment right simply by transferring an action to an agency. And by the end of the argument, Gorsuch had staked out his position with absolutely no ambiguity because the elements of the administrative proceeding are similar to the elements of common law fraud. He said, quote, those elements all match up. Congress can't move the dispute to an agency without a jury. Congress is free to prescribe fraud and extend the common law action any way it wants. It just can't take away a person's right to be heard before his peers. Period. Justice Gorsuch? just wanted to clarify a few things that I, I found confusing. <clears throat> Under 10b-5, in addition to proving a material misrepresentation, I thought Sienter was required statutorily, correct? Yes, yes you are. Okay. And then I had thought that, as well, that for when, they, when the SEC seeks civil monetary penalties, it has to prove causation between the defendant's conduct and a loss to persons. Yes, yes Your That's Honor. That's statutorily required. That's in the statute. Okay. So those elements all match up. They match up very neatly. Okay. Yes. And I thought in toll, Justice Brennan made the point that there doesn't have to be a perfect common law analog. The, the common law analog is a very low bar. Okay. And I thought he said that the more important thing were the penalties sought, that you look at the common law analog of the cause of action and the, and, and the relief sought, and where those — and he placed special emphasis on the second part. C correct, Your Honors. And that, that the main issue, the more important of the two elements, was not the 1791 guidepost, but was, was actually the, the, whether or not the government's seeking penalties. And so it's all about — you know, if the government's seeking penalties, the, the government is required to take the case, again, under all of the other uh, elements we've talked about, it's required to take the case in front of a jury if, the, if, if their target wants a jury trial. And Congress is free to prescribe that and extend that and expand it any way it wants. Yes. It just can't take away a person's right to be heard before his peers. Correct. And for that matter, the SEC could fix this problem by itself this afternoon uh, by giving people the option the problem here is that it's mandatory. It's coercive. Most of the other cases, uh, situations at other agencies, pe people have an opt-out or they can choose which, which forum they go in. Uh, the problem here is that it's coercive, and so the SEC gets to, gets to stri unilaterally strip your Seventh Amendment and a number of other rights away by choosing that forum. Thank you. The SEC could fix that in a heartbeat. Thank you. Justice. Now, on the other side, this was really first and foremost Justice Elena Kagan, who was uh, taking the other side, and she was really harping on the precedent set in Atlas Roofing as not only coming out in favor of the Securities and Exchange Commission, but she insisted that, in fact, the ruling in Atlas was so clear that Jarchese is an easy case to decide as far as she is concerned. And by the end of these proceedings, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Jackson were both squarely on side with Justice Kagan, including the fact that Atlas Roofing alone, for them, is more than enough to find in favor of the Securities and Exchange Commission in this case. Now, the basic facts of this Atlas Roofing case are as follows. So, pursuant to a congressional statute, companies were forbidden to maintain unsafe or unhealthy working conditions, and the federal government was granting the power to impose civil penalties to get abatement orders in administrative proceedings if a violation was found. Now, the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission was the agency designated to oversee those proceedings. And Atlas Roofing was fined for a violation, and it argued that the administrative proceeding 
was improper because it violated their Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. And in Atlas, the court would hold. See, Mr. McCluck, I think that that's not a, a right reading of our precedent. I mean, what has happened since Atlas Roofing, we've actually never had since Atlas Roofing another, if you will, public-public case, where uh, public-private case, where there's a government entity on one side of the V. And the reason that we've not had those in 50 or 60 years is because those have been thought the easy cases. What have been thought the hard cases, Northern Pipeline, Shore, Grand Financiera, Stern, oil states, these are all private people on both sides of the V. And nonetheless, we've held that public rights might be involved because their disputes are embedded in federal statutory schemes. So those are the hard cases. But we've never suggested that um, in a case where Congress has given an agency the power to enforce something and the agency is um, is bringing the charge, if you will, uh, that, 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 you know, that that's just not it's that's settled. Well, it, it, it's settled only to the extent no one's brought it up uh, and forced this issue since Atlas Roofing. In I this, agree. In this context. I, nobody has had the, you know, chutzpah, <laughs> <laughs> to quote my people, to bring it up since Atlas Roofing. Congress has the power to give an executive agency authority over adjudicating violations of a new public right statute without infringing the Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. Now, much like Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kagan seemed to repeatedly refine her criticism throughout the proceeding. And frankly, if Gorsuch's criticism of the SEC was biting, Elena Kagan's defense of the SEC was downright acerbic, if not bordering on hostile. And those claims... Mr. McCulloch, if I could just interrupt you for a second. I mean, I have to say you're sort of describing a case that I don't recognize. Um, Atlas Roofing says numerous times, it could not have been clearer, the Seventh Amendment is no bar to the creation of new rights or to their enforcement outside the regular courts of law. That's one statement. Congress is not required by the Seventh Amendment to choke the already crowded federal courts with new types of litigation or prevent it from committing some new types of litigation to administrative agencies with special confidence. That's another. There's another. There's another. There's another. I agree with you. It says new claims. We can talk about what new claims is. But it could not have been clearer that um, that what they were saying is that the Seventh Amendment was no bar to Congress making a decision that certain kinds of claims were best adjudicated in administrative agencies. Yes, Your Honor, and, and I think we're, we're pretty close, actually. So maybe the, the, the dispute is If we're pretty close, because I think that just resolves the case. That's the issue. I mean, that's the issue. That's the result. Seventh yeah, well, Amendment is no bar. Well, and, and respectfully, Your Honor, for several reasons, that, that, that's where we very much part, part ways. Uh, I thought so, that that was going to be true. <laughs> now, I do take issue with much of Atlas Roofing. Uh, first of all, I very much agree with Justice Thomas that this uh, public and private rights distinction is really no distinction at all. That any time the government wants to take someone's money through fines and penalties, the money they are taking is itself private property, and any loss of life, liberty, or property is entitled to due process of law as the 5th and 14th Amendments require. But even if we set that distinction aside, the workplace safety regulations created by OSHA were novel and had no prior common law equivalent. However, in the current case, Jarkezi, he was being charged with fraud, which could not be more well established as an offense at common law, and this, in my opinion, makes Atlas Roofing and Jarkezi two completely different creatures I see no reason that Atlas Roofing should control. However, any honest appraisal would have to concede that Atlas Roofing is a very complex case that has gotten more complex with later decisions that have watered it down, and there are indeed plausible ways to read Atlas Roofing that could be interpreted in favor of the SEC in this case, 
Now, I have included links to the Atlas Roofing decision as well as several amicus briefs that were filed in the Jarchese case that address uh, the degree to which uh, Atlas is or is not applicable to Jarchese for those who want to uh, dig deeper into this case and is relevant in SEC v. Jarchese because this is going to really be the most important uh, precedent cited here. Now, the remaining justices, anyone I haven't talked about by name already, were really not very clear at all on their intentions. Now, Alito gave some indication that his position aligned with that of Justice Gorsuch, but otherwise, there was very little, at least very little in the oral arguments themselves, that could be said to give any clear indication of where the remaining justices stand on this case. However, I am confident uh, that at least one of the three alternate holdings in the Fifth Circuit will be affirmed, and almost certainly by a 6-3 majority. And there was much rejoicing. All right, let's move on to debunking some of the myths that have been going around about uh, the Jarchese case. Because by some accounts, Jarchese threatens the very foundations of the administrative state. Why don't you try speaking in words instead of your damn dirty lies? Now, in this telling, a victory for the respondents would leave the federal government unable to ensure workplace safety, discourage corporate fraud, or protect the environment. Now, Jarchese is an unquestionably important case, but it is absolutely silly to suggest that it challenges the legitimacy of the modern federal government. The case is really about the continued viability of agency adjudication as a means of enforcing regulatory schemes. This is a big deal, but this hardly threatens the viability of the administrative state, nor will it cause a new Great Depression or the destruction of the New Deal. So, Professor, would you say it's time for everyone to panic? Yes, I would, Ken. And not to mention that the just the timeless classics that people always trot out for every case or policy they personally disagree with. You can always find someone uh, saying, if this happens, people will die. Hmm. Professor, without knowing precisely what the danger is, would you say it's time for our viewers to crack each other's heads open and feast on the goo inside? Yes, I would, Kent. Now, these concerns are completely ridiculous. Articles like the one by The Atlantic saying that Jarchese will literally destroy the federal government, or this article from Vox suggesting that reaffirming the Fifth Circuit in Jarchese will literally, and these are their words, blow up the government. What's it like to be a liar? Huh? Do you like being a liar with pants constantly on fire? Oh, are simply not serious arguments, and there is no need to refute them because common sense alone does that. So the reason I bring these up is because I actually think it is important to demonstrate this consistent record of errors in judgment among the administrative state fetishists who always say every administrative agency reform will always have catastrophic consequences. The Atlantic has made these very same doomsday predictions about Hallen v. Bracken, NFIB v. OSHA, West Virginia v. EPA, TransUnion v. Ramirez, and Loper Bright Enterprises v. Ramondo. And they are not alone. Vox, for example, has made all the same alarmist warnings for all the same cases. But when the administrative reforms that they feared transpire, and the sky never actually falls down, as their chicken little-esque warnings predicted, everyone seems to just move on without learning any lesson from their catastrophic failure of judgment. Bob, it's like fool me once, shame on you! Fool me twice! Guess where the shame is now? Still you! No, I don't. 
And more often than not, it seems real people in the real world who latch on to these warnings and run with them never seem to second guess the overall message, no matter how many times the evidence their beliefs are predicated upon completely falls apart. Really, Amy? Because I've met some people, okay? Real people. And I got to tell you, a lot of them are fucking idiots. So, what will the likely consequences of affirming the Fifth Circuit in this case actually be? Now, it will require significant changes in the operation of some federal agencies, and in particular, regulatory agencies that enforce their regulatory edicts before agency adjudicators will have to make changes. Now, what those changes are and how far reaching the consequences of these changes will be, this depends on which challenges succeed. But little in Jarchese's case implicates, let alone threatens, the ability of agencies to issue regulations and enforce those regulations in court. Indeed, the core of Jarchese's case is that agencies should be required to enforce their rules in a federal court, not that they cannot issue rules or seek to have them enforced. Now, although most of the commentary in, in the news and from the Washington uh, political class has focused on the SEC's claims and their implications, the more interesting question may be what could come next should Jarchese prevail. Uh, and for example, legal scholar and attorney uh, Jonathan Adler has argued that Jarchese's immediate aim is to prevent enforcement of the SEC's civil penalty order against him, either because the double four-cause removal of an SEC administrative law judge renders them unconstitutional, or because the SEC should not have been able to prevent Jarchese from defending himself in a federal court in the first instance. Going forward, the question would be how to cure those constitutional infirmities and whether some cures, such as eliminating four-cause removal protections for administrative law judges, would create constitutional problems of their own. Now, there are any number of proposals out there to bring four-cause removal in line with the Constitution. Now, which proposal the court will likely adopt is really anyone's guess. And this, in fact, is the one big criticism that I have of this case. And that is this ambiguity of any potential enforcement action uh, that we're seeing is, was largely avoidable, really. Now, first of all, it's not common practice for lower courts to issue such broad rulings because this is an intermediate appellate court. That means that they will not be the ones who ever have the first nor the last word in deciding this case. They did not start with a tabula rasa, and they have to consider precedent. Precedent they do not have the power to overrule. For example, it is not for the lower courts to adjudge the propriety of the Supreme Court's holding in a case such as Atlas Roofing. It is the duty of the court. <laughs> I said duty, but no time to laugh about it now. And especially the duty of the lower courts to say what the law is and not what the law should be. This is, of course, unless you're one of the, uh, I don't know, maybe three or four uh, originalists out there, uh, along with me and uh, maybe Gary Lawson and one or two others uh, that think that... Uh, Originalism, the Constitution should take precedent over case precedent, but we are well-known nut jobs, so what does that matter? Now, anyways, my second concern has to do with their resolving all three issues in the case. Now, even though it was unnecessary to do so, they chose to do it anyway, and this is rare. And this issuing of alternate holdings as well almost never happens. And while I personally 
don't necessarily see as much wrong with disregarding precedent. The first issue, which most people do see an issue with, I do see an issue with this second concern here. So there's a very good reason that courts generally don't issue alternate holdings such as this one. Now, don't misunderstand me here because I'm not saying that the Fifth Circuit was wrong in their holdings. I believe the three holdings they raised are all correct, and I would like to see all three affirmed. It's just that bringing all three of those broad resolutions as alternative holdings in a single case was bad strategy. Now, if the goal was to get each of them affirmed on an individual level on constitutional grounds or as a matter of first principles, that was really not a good way to go about trying to achieve that. This significantly increases the chance that it will produce a premature resolution of these questions, and it also has the potential to force certain questions onto the agenda on a set of facts or with a given posture that are simply not the best facts or the strongest posture for what might be the desired outcome. And really, at this point, all that's left to do is to wait and see how this case shakes out. And that is really all I have for you guys today. Thank you so much for joining me here on Legalese. Uh, don't forget to do all of those things that help trigger Al Gore's rhythm. If you liked it, hit the like button. If you disliked it, hit the dislike. If you want to get updates, make sure you uh, subscribe to the channel. Definitely leave me a comment and let me know what you thought about this video. I, I do really always love to uh, get a chance to interact with you guys as much as uh, possible in the comment section. And so, uh, I, until next time, this is Bob for Legalese, talking about SEC v. Jarchese, and of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est. <laughs>